So what is your worldview? Indeed, everybody does have a worldview. This morning, everybody's following a worldview. Everybody is being discipled by a worldview. And you're either following a worldview that is the truth or you're following a worldview that is a lie. That's always been the case. That's why the Apostle Paul, among many things that he wrote, he's writing to the church at Colossae, and he's writing them this letter because he wants to show to them the supremacy of Christ. In other words, that Jesus is supreme. He is greater than all things. In fact, in chapter one, he's communicating to them that Jesus is the creator of all things. And then in chapter two, this is what Paul says to them. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, listen to this, in whom, that is Jesus, in whom are hidden all all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let me, let me pause right there. What that means is if you start way over here at July 31st, 2022, and you trace every bit of information, every bit of knowledge, every bit of wisdom, you trace that all the way back to where it came from. It came from Jesus. He's the source. He's the treasure. It says in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can't know anything without Jesus. Nothing can be known apart from Jesus Christ. He is the uncaused cause of all things that exist in this world. Paul goes on, he says in verse four, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible or persuasive arguments. In other words, I don't want people getting in your head. I want you to be so rooted and anchored to the fact that Jesus is Lord, that everything has come from him and through him and for him, that you are not deluded with plausible arguments. Verse five, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And he says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, you know how you received Christ Jesus as Lord? It was by God's grace, but God's grace brought you to repentance and faith. So Paul says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. This ought to be the way we walk, repenting and believing through repentance and faith. By God's grace, repentance and faith. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, verse six, so walk in him, verse seven, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then he says, see to it or pay attention to this. Look out for this, be aware of this, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. That phrase empty deceit there has the idea of pseudo intellectual babble. It sounds smart, it sounds good, but in McCullough terminology, it's just a bunch of hooey. That's all it is. According, he says, to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. I believe that if the apostle Paul were here among us today, he would be shocked to see just how far the Christian church, at least the Christian church that I know of in the place that I live in this community and in this country, I think the apostle Paul would be shocked to see just how far down the path we've traveled away from rooted in Christ, having been deluded by intellectual, pseudo intellectual babble, persuasive, plausible, arguments. Listen, there is a battle going on, and I think you know this, for the minds of people. And we're not looking to win an argument with anybody. We are looking to be used of the Lord to win hearts to the Lord Jesus and to his kingdom for his glory. But we want to talk about worldview. And here's why worldview is a really big deal. 
Your worldview is what you set your belief system on. Your beliefs. Your worldview determines your beliefs. Your beliefs determine your values. In other words, your beliefs determine what's important to you. What, what, what you hold on to, what, what you're about, and your values then determine the way you live your life. Worldview determines beliefs. Beliefs determine values. Values determine behavior. And what I want to do is I want to lay out for you some important fundamental questions about life. And your worldview, the lens through which you're interpreting the world around you, is the determining factor of how you're going to answer these eight questions. Now, these eight questions, by the way, aren't just for today. These eight questions are going to be the grid that I follow over the next eight weeks to preach on. So next week, I'm going to preach just on question one. The next week, I'm going to preach on just on question two. So let me show you these questions here what, what are our beliefs? Well, we, we figure that out when we answer the question, where do we find truth? Is, is there such a thing as truth? And if so, then where do we find it? Question two, does God exist? And if he does exist, is he, is he sovereign? In other words, is he in control of everything? Or is he limited? Have there been limitations that have been placed on him? Number three, how did we get here? Question number four, what's wrong with the world? Everybody's got different answers. Have you noticed that about what's wrong with the world? It's because they're coming from different worldviews. And if we don't agree on what's wrong with the world, then we certainly don't agree on what's the solution to what's wrong with the world. Question number six, who am I? Question number seven, why am I here? Question eight, what happens after I die? And then how you answer those questions because of your worldview, determines your beliefs, your values, and then your behavior. Now, in a moment, I want to show you some of the more prevalent worldviews that are in our world today. I don't have time to cover all of them. There's way too many. It would take us a long time to do that. And my goal today is not that we become experts in knowing what all these other worldviews believe. I really want to spend time and energy making sure that we know what we believe and why we believe that. And we're going to start that journey in detail next week. But let me just say this to you, because I'm summarizing entire worldviews today, they're going to be kind of general. Okay. So they're not going to be maybe exactly what you might say. Yeah, that's it. I just challenge you to try to reduce an entire worldview down to five or six words. It's not really easy to do. So we're, I know there's some generalities that are there. Let me also just help me out a little bit today by remembering this. I don't know if you've noticed this, but currently in the world today, you can't breathe without somebody accusing you of being political. Everything suddenly is political. And somebody today is probably going to accuse me of being political. That's not my goal. That's not my goal at all. In fact, my goal is today is to do really what I see Jesus doing, what I see his disciples doing. We see Paul doing this in his ministry, which is this, understanding the world that they were ministering in, understanding the culture that they were living in so that they could, in an optimal way, communicate the gospel with the world around them. They had to understand where these people were coming from, how to communicate the language, the words, the imagery, and all that kind of amazing things. We have a college student in our church family who this fall, she'll be moving to South Asia for two years. She's going to be serving with our uh, international mission board. In fact, she leaves this week to go away for seven weeks of training to prepare for those two years. And in large part, what she's going to be learning over the next seven weeks is what is the worldview of the people in that part of the world? How do they think? What's their belief system? What do they value? How is that affecting their lifestyle, their choices, and their behaviors? Why are they going to spend so much time teaching her about the worldview of people in that part of the world? Because we want her to be effective for the kingdom. We want her to connect the gospel to hearts and minds and to the people that live there. And so that's what I want to see happen here today and over the coming 
couple of months that we're in this together. Now, if at some point you find yourself kind of feeling a little uncomfortable, and I don't know that I agree with pastor what he's saying here right now, that's okay. We can certainly disagree. But what I don't want you to do is just get in a huff and get mad and I'm leaving the church now. All right. Listen, it could be that something you hear today, you go, I don't know if I'm quite there on that. You could be right, but it could be that there's a warning light on the dashboard of your life in that moment going, hang on, Bubba. It could be that you've been marrying some worldly philosophy out there to a biblical worldview. And so now you've kind of gotten twisted around the very thing that Paul didn't want to see happen to the Colossians has been happening to you. So this is a good day for us just to be honest with ourselves and with the Lord to say, this is what I'm truly believing. This is what I'm holding on to. Okay, so let's dive in. I'd said all that because I don't want a lot of emails from you this week. All right, so let's dive in. According to recent research, the worldview that right now seems to be most prevalent in our country is a worldview known as moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, This kind of got well known about uh, 15, 16 years ago. And what we're finding now through research is that this is the largest worldview that we see in our country today. And let me back up and say this. Only a very small number of people in in our culture hold to one particular worldview. Truly, even far greater than moralistic therapeutic deism, the greatest, the biggest, the largest worldview right now in our society is a thing that they're calling syncretism, which simply means that what we're doing in our world today is we're walking along the buffet line of all the belief systems and we're simply picking and choosing parts and pieces from each one and syncing those together to form the worldview that I want, that will shape the values in the life that I want. But, but beyond syncretism, this is a big one, moral therapeutic deism. Let me just kind of help, help you understand what, what that is. Moral therapeutic deism is pretty much what you see in popular Christianity today in America. And we need to pay attention because sometimes I hear it in our music. Sometimes I see it in the books that are being published in the name of Christianity. We hear it in preaching a lot today. It's just sort of the air that we're breathing. But know this, it's a counterfeit Christianity. It's not real. It's not true, biblical, orthodox Christianity. Far actually from that. Here are the five core tenets of what moral therapeutic deism is. Let me show you this. They believe that a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That doesn't sound too bad, right, on its face. The second tenet is this. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and Most other world religions teach that same thing as well, right? God wants us to be nice and kind and fair. The third tenet of moral therapeutic deism is that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. In other words, I don't exist to glorify God. God really exists to glorify me, to make me happy, to make my life better. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God's needed to resolve a problem. You know, if I'm in a jam, then I can call out to God and and he'll do something for me. And if he does something for me, I'll say thank you. And if he doesn't, if he leaves me hanging, then I'll be mad. And then I may just go full-blown atheist. And then the fifth tenet of moral therapeutic deism is good people go to heaven when they die. If you're paying attention, you probably are thinking, that is a lot of the Christianity that I hear in society today. It sounds good, And I don't find myself going, well, that's way out of left field. But you have sensed that something's kind of not happening there. Something's sort of missing there. Now, three quarters of the people, 75% of the people who lean into moral therapeutic deism would say that they're a Christian. But when you ask them questions that are oriented around the truths of the gospel, you come to find out they're really not born-again Christians. They don't have a personal relationship with the Lord. You will probably find today in every church across America people who hold to moral therapeutic deism, at least to some degree. You do too. It's tainted me as well because this is 
the air that we're breathing and the culture that we're living in. And we need to know this and we need to be aware of this today. Moral therapeutic deism is called that because the first idea is that it's about being moral. God wants me to be moral. But under this worldview, morality before God is simply being nice, being kind. That's really the extent of this morality. You can sleep with who you want. You can cheat if you must, lie if you must. Really, whatever you think you need to do to be happy is okay as long as you're being nice to people as you do it. And, and that's really kind of the extent of the morality demands that they believe God has placed on them in this worldview. It's therapeutic because the understanding in this worldview is God exists for me to sometimes lay down on his therapy couch and let him tell me how good I am and let him make me happy and build me up and, and, and grow my, my self-esteem. He wants me to live my best life now. That's really what he wants. And then deism, moral therapeutic deism, meaning that there is a God. I believe there's a God and I believe this God exists, but he's somewhere kind of far out there. He's, I'm like living in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, right? He's nice and he likes me, um, but he's really not involved in the details of my life. Again, unless I'm just in a tight and then I need to holler at him and see if I can get some help from him. This is why even on Sundays now, as I stand here to preach, I'm struggling when I talk about being a Christian. Because when I say that today, being a Christian doesn't mean in our culture today what it meant 25 years ago. Because there's millions, tens of millions of people running around our culture today claiming to be Christians. But unfortunately, they've been deceived. What has happened to them is what Paul was concerned was gonna happen to people who lived in Colossae. They're gonna be deluded by persuasive arguments, pseudo-intellectual babble. So generally speaking, let me just show you how moral therapeutic deism answers these questions. Where do we find truth? Go with your heart. Just trust your heart. That sound familiar? And some of y'all say that, and we live by that. Oh, does God exist? Yes, they would say he does exist. He's there if I need him. He wants me to be happy and to be nice. How did we get here? They would typically say uh, some, some mixture of God and chance. That's kind of how we got here. What's wrong with the world? Well, what's wrong with the world is that things are out there that threaten my happiness. Things are out there that threaten my security. And that's what's wrong with the world. The buzzword for that today is triggers, right? So I need a safe place because uh, God wants me to be happy and to feel safe and secure. So what's the solution? Well, I need more safety and I need more happiness and I need to love and express myself. That's really the pathway to being happy is to love myself and you love yourself. We all love ourselves and we're all gonna be happy and this is gonna be an amazing world that we live in. So who am I? Well, I'm, who, I'm whoever I wanna be. And, and that's what God's about. God wants me to be whoever I want to be. And so I get to decide who I want to be. And then I just give myself to being the best version of me that I can possibly be. Well, why am I here? I'm here to be the best version of me I can be. What happens after I die? Good people go to heaven. Well, who are the bad people? Hitler. Like apparently hell's reserved for like one person when you ask them the question, right? But everybody else is good enough that they're all going to heaven. You're good enough. You're going to heaven. So let's just all be happy and it's going to be great. And then that determines our values. What's important to a person with that worldview? Being happy is what's important. But feeling secure, that's what's important. And then their behavior flows out of that. I, I gotta pursue what brings me happiness. I wanna do whatever it is that helps me feel more safe and secure. That's moral therapeutic deism. George Barna says this, he says, moral therapeutic deism is generally an optimistic and comforting form of religious faith, albeit based on a twisted version of Christianity that emphasizes self rather than God and relies on emotion rather than the truth. He goes on to say in the moral therapeutic deistic world, church exists primarily to offer supportive and upbeat community. You're good and be happy and you're good and be happy. Rah, 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 everybody, right? At the expense of true worship of God. 
at the expense of service to God, at the expense of lay down your life, take up your cross and follow Jesus, at the expense of accountability, at the expense of pursuing holiness. This says a lot, I think, about the current state of the church, Christianity in America. Barna says this, he says, and I agree with this, Christianity in America is rotting from the inside out. We cannot blame our woes solely on what's happening outside of us. The church is our worst enemy right now because we have gone hook, line, and sinker into this sugary soda pop version of Christianity that is no Christianity at all. The next worldview that's really on the rise in our culture today is Marxism. That's really no surprise given what I just said that orthodox biblical Christianity is on the decline, then it makes sense that we would see Marxism on a steep incline. Because Marx and his followers viewed religion and faith as an impediment to them being able to usher in their vision for humanity. A goal of Marx was to rid the world of religion, rid the world of the nuclear family, rid the world of marriage, and if you've not been paying attention, this is beginning to happen in America pretty quickly. Today, 27% of our fellow Americans say that allowing people to own private property results in economic injustice. 23% of our American friends today would say that individual property ownership is bad for society. One of the popular offshoots of Marxism that's really kind of become famous or infamous, depending on your worldview, I guess, over the last couple of years, is a thing called critical race theory. Now, let, let me let my biblical worldview shine through here for a moment. Racism in any shape, form, or fashion is a wicked, evil sin right out of the pit of hell. Here's the problem with critical race theory. Critical race theory is attempting to remove racism from the world by creating more racism. Does that make sense? It doesn't make any sense, but that's, that's what's behind that. And consequently, over the last couple of years, billions of dollars have been pumped into that worldview through huge corporations like Apple and Walmart and uh, Amazon and Coca-Cola and many, many others. And it is coming fast and furious through our media and through our government schools. How do people with that Marxist worldview answer those questions? Where do you find truth? They would say, well, there is no truth. It's all subjective. They would say there's absolutely no absolutes. Do you hear how self-contradicting that is? Does God exist? They would say, no, there is no God. How did we get here? Random chance. We're just walking random collections of stardust. That's all we are. Random chance. What's wrong with the world? Injustice and oppression. Listen, I agree. Injustice and oppression is a problem in the world today, but there's a root cause behind that. That's not the ultimate problem, but in their worldview, that is the ultimate problem, injustice and oppression. What's the solution? Overthrow the existing political, cultural, and governmental order. Who am I? Well, I'm either the oppressed or I'm the oppressor. There's really only two categories of people in the Marxist worldview. You're one or the other. You're either the oppressor or the oppressed. And by the way, that struggle in their worldview is never going to stop. If you go from being the oppressed, then you're the oppressor. And it's just this insanity. Why am I here? To create a utopian world. What happens after I die? Game over. What do I value? Justice and equity. And by the way, let me say this about um, equity. Equity and equality are two different things. And you're hearing this word equity thrown around a whole lot these days. Equity means everybody gets the same outcome. Equality means we all get the same opportunity, right? Equality is we all get the same opportunity. Equity is we get the same outcome. Equity is everybody gets a trophy, no matter if they showed up for practice, no matter if they tried. We, we all get the same regardless. And you can just see how an, a society is going to devolve with that kind of 
worldview. That's their values and that shapes their behavior. They're going to do whatever they think is necessary, whatever they think is necessary to attain a perfectly just and equitable world. You only have to look back in the last hundred years to see that this ends in mass genocide. There's no question about that. Does not end well. Here's a third competing worldview that's heavily influencing society today. It's called secular humanism or naturalism or atheism. By the way, I believe that if this one becomes the dominant, and it may not have to be the dominant worldview, but this one will land in mass genocide too. I could take a while to explain why I think that, but we don't really have time to do that today. But you need to be paying attention to the farmers in the Netherlands right now, for example. Okay, just heads up. Don't need to go off on all that. But here's a quote from a secular humanist. Listen to this. It sounds wonderful. Using technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, markedly reduce disease, extend our lifespan, significantly modify our behavior. Whoa. Using technology, we can significantly modify our behavior, alter the course of human evolution and cultural development, unlock vast new powers, and provide humankind with unparalleled opportunity for achieving an abundant and meaningful life. That sounds great, right? It sounds so great that this is exactly why Adam and Eve chose the lie from Satan in the garden. Same thing he offered them. You want to be in control? You want to be the the captains of your own destiny? You can do this all by yourself. And I think you can hear out of that quote that the hope of the world, according to this worldview, the hope of the world is human reason and science. Let's talk about science for a minute, young people. Because right now, this worldview is lying to our children and telling them that science and faith are mutually exclusive. You have to decide. Are you going to be a faith person or are you going to be a science person? That's a lie, young people, that you have to choose between those two, but that's what they're being fed. We had an eight-year-old little boy that attended our vacation Bible school first week of June this year. Eight years old. He told his teacher in the midst of vacation Bible school, he told his teacher, he said, I'm not really a faith guy. I'm a science guy. Listen, as people of faith, as a born-again follower of Jesus, I want you to know I love science. I love it. And you know why we have science? Because if you track back every bit of knowledge, every bit of information, every bit of wisdom, guess where it comes from? It comes from Jesus. Because of Jesus, we have science. Science exists because God exists. We have today things like logic and reason and fixed laws of nature and math because behind all of that is an eternal God who is a God of order and a God of precision. Science is what it is today because people who were operating with a biblical worldview led the way into what we know today as modern science. People like Galileo and Newton and Pascal and many others were people who professed to be followers of Jesus. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Look at this. C.S. Lewis said, men became scientists because they expected laws in nature and they expected laws in nature because they believed in a legislator. They knew that behind it all was the God who had created all of this. In fact, today, many of the best scientists over the last hundred years, 60% of our Nobel laureates profess to be Christian. Listen, young people, science and Christianity are not in competition with each other. Actually, they complement each other. Science tells us how, and Christianity, the Bible tells us why and who is behind it all. Science explains a lot of things, but it still can't explain where all this came from. Still can't explain where life comes from. Still can't explain the purpose of life or what love is or why we do the things that we do. A popular phrase that we're hearing out of this worldview these days is trust the science. You might heard that? Trust the science. Science by its very definition 
must be questioned, must be tested. If we stopped, if we just, if we trusted the scientists 300 years ago, 200 years ago, 100, just try, we wouldn't be where we are today. Science by its very nature must be questioned, must be tested. Science is amazing and it's made the world a better place, but science isn't settled just because a select group of scientists say it's settled. But the secular humanists, they worship the God, the false God of human reason and science. And they want to make disciples of their worldview of all the people in the world. Now here's how the secular humanists answer those four questions. Where do we find truth? Well, truth is subjective. I got my truth. This is, I'm living out my truth. Anybody hear that anymore? Right? They hear that all the time. That's your truth, bud. And this is my truth. That's, that's their philosophy. There is absolutely no absolute truth. Does God exist? They'd say, no, God does not exist. We're just random walking around bags of stardust. That's all we are. We're here by random chance. How do we get here? Random chance. What's wrong, wrong with the world? Well, unsolved problems. Well, how are we going to fix that? What's the solution? Science is going to solve everything. Human reason is going to solve everything. Who am I? I'm simply a biological machine. No inherent worth or value or purpose or meaning. I'm just a biological machine. Why am I here? I'm here to improve society and save the planet. What happens after I die? That's it. Game over. What do I value? I value nature and science. And I want to do what's ever necessary to advance those things. Now, the final worldview that I want to take a look at today, and I see some of you taking pictures of the screen. That's all great. We're going to put this on all our media platforms later so you can have that and you can look at it, okay? But the, the, the fifth uh, or the fourth worldview is the one we're going to camp out on for the next eight weeks, and that's the biblical worldview. And here's how the biblical worldview would answer those questions. Where do we find truth? Well, we would say truth is absolute, What's true for you is also true for me. It is set, it is fixed, and it is revealed in the authoritative, inspired, inerrant, infallible, everlasting Word of God. That's next week's sermon. Second question, does God exist? And if so, is he limited or sovereign? Oh, yes, God exists. And unlike the moral therapeutic deism who just says, well, he sits back in the nosebleed section and he's a fan of mine. He, he, he cheers me on, you know, he... he, he he likes me. We would say, yeah, he exists, but he's not sitting back. He is sovereign over every molecule in the universe. He is God. Question number three, how do we get here? We would say God created all things. More specifically, Jesus. Colossians 1 says Jesus created all things. It might just blown some of your minds. John chapter 1 says Jesus created all things. My creator's got a name. I already talked to him today a few times. What's wrong with the world? Sin. And we would see the manifestation of sin in some of the ways that the other worldviews point out, but we would say you're, 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 you haven't traced that far enough. Get to the root cause. What's the solution? The solution for what is wrong with the world today is salvation through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's our solution. Who am I? I'm a, I am created by God in his image and adopted by grace into his family. Why am I here? I'm here to glorify him. I'm here to live a life of praise and thanks to him for who he is, for what he's done, for what he's gonna do. What happens after I die? Well, because I put my hope in Jesus, his shed blood for me at the cross, his victory over the grave, his resurrection from the dead. By his grace, I'm going to live forever with God. What happens, uh, or, or, or what do I value then? I value God's glory. I value God's purposes. And, and, and I want to behave out of that. I want to do whatever I need to do to honor God, to glorify God and his purposes. And right now, most of you are going clearly without a doubt, Pastor, I am that person. I hold to a biblical worldview. Do you really? Because here's what I can tell you about my life. Too often, my behavior betrays that I'm not functioning 
out of a biblical worldview. There will be moments, sadly, in my life today, I pray they will be few and brief, but there will be moments because I still wrestle with old sin nature in me that I set down the lenses of a biblical or gospel-centered worldview and I pick up the lens of some other philosophy out there and I will shift my beliefs, I will shift my values and my behavior will not match up with what I say I believe inside of a biblical worldview. Now, I don't think that's just something that the pastor does from time to time. I think if we're honest today, we would say, if I took the pop quiz on what is a biblical worldview, I would probably pass it. I know how to give intellectual assent to those questions, but where the rubber meets the road and the way I'm living my life, there's a breakdown there. And here's the sad reality. When we do that, when we go into the world claiming that we're functioning out of a biblical worldview, but we don't live lives that are any different from the atheist, the secular humanist, the Marxist, the moral therapeutic deist, then we're hypocritical. We're undercutting the effectiveness of our witness in this world for Jesus because we're failing to live out the kind of lives that we say we believe. We're like everybody else. We're just walking through the buffet line of belief systems and picking out the things that accommodate what I want, what'll help me, what'll promote my life and my agenda. And we're trying to sync all that together. We're being discipled, church, by false gospels, and it shows in how we're living our lives. Some of you may remember this. This is my Bob Ross happy little tree. My worldview is determining what I believe and that's determining what I value and that determines my behavior. So today when I set down that biblical worldview, that God-centered, gospel-centered worldview, and I pick up another set of lenses. Now I shift what I believe that changes my values, and now my behavior shifts away from biblical behavior to unbiblical behavior. For example, I'll just pick one sin, just one, but we could put any, any up here and do the same thing. But let's just talk about the sin of coveting. Can I read that? I failed penmanship. Let's talk about the sin of coveting. Us, believers, born again people. When Man, why don't I have that? Why, does, why doesn't my family get to do that? All right, anybody ever covet? Right? You're scrolling through your social media and go, why do they always, what? Right? The Bible says it's wrong for us to covet. So, so what's going on there with that? Well, let's just shrink those eight questions down to three. Who am I? Who do I believe I am? What do I believe God has done, and who is God? So if here, I, here I am, and I'm dealing with the sin of coveting. Who am I? Well, if I'm coveting, I'm an unhappy person. Not only am I an unhappy person, but I'm an unsatisfied person. I want something that I, that I don't have. And I feel robbed. I feel like I'm not being treated the way that I really deserve to be treated. This is who I am. I am a person who is uh, untreated, treated unfairly. So if that's what I'm believing about myself, then what does that say about what God has done to me in my life. Well, 
I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe he's sovereign. If I'm unhappy, God's made me unhappy. If I'm unsatisfied, then I believe that God has failed. He's failed to satisfy me. And I believe because I feel like I'm being treated unfairly. God's unfair. He's not treated me fairly. So who is God based on this? Well, if God has made me unhappy, he's not good because that's not good. And I need to be happy. You see, I'm being bombarded by moral therapeutic deism now, right? And if God has failed to satisfy, who is God? He's insufficient. He's not enough. He's not enough for me. I need God plus. Like I need God in the platinum package, right? Because he's not enough. And if God has treated me unfairly, it's because he is unfair. Whoa, wait a minute. I say I have a biblical worldview. I say that I'm a follower of Jesus. I say that I've been born again. But right now, this day in my life is saying otherwise about me. What is the deal? So I ask myself these questions. Is this really what I believe about God? Do I really believe that he's not good? Do I really believe he's not sufficient? Do I really believe that God is unfair? This is where you would probably go, no, that's not what I really believe. But it is what you've been believing because your behavior says we root it. The fruit's connected to the root, right? So I have been believing those things. I don't want to believe those things because I don't believe those things are true. What happened to me? Why did I believe those things? This is when Paul goes, oh, wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body of death? And then he goes, oh, thanks be to God for his son, Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul said in Colossians uh, 2? He said, just as you started your walk with Jesus, continue in that. How did you start your walk, start your walk with Jesus? By grace, you repented and you turned to faith. This is how we continue to walk with Jesus. When the dashboard indicator light comes on because of the fruit in my life, that my belief system is messed up, that I've bought into an unbiblical worldview, that I'm messed up at the root, I ask myself these questions and I say, that is not what I really believe. That is not what I would ever wanna believe. God, I wanna turn from that by your grace. I wanna repent from that. That's what repent means. It means to change your mind. And I wanna, I wanna begin to walk by faith. And I'm gonna ask the same question here in faith, who, who God is, who is God? Is he not good? No, he's so good. He's beyond good. He is loving. He is love. Is he insufficient? Oh no, he is more than enough. He is more than enough. I don't need Jesus plus, I just need Jesus. Paul said in everything, I've learned how to be content. He's all I need. This, it wasn't as he was running out of the tunnel to play football that he said, Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things to Christ. You strengthen me. It was when he was talking about, he's all I need. Nothing's gonna shake me from this because Jesus is sufficient. Is he unfair? He's beyond fair. This is who God is. He's a God of grace. I'm so glad he's not a God that's fair. I would be in hell today if God had treated me fairly. Beyond fair. I got mercy. I got grace. What has God done? Same question. Let's bring it to the faith side. What has God done? Has he made me unhappy? No. He has saved me. He's adopted me. He's made me his own. Has he failed to satisfy? No. I have an abundant life. I have everything I need. Psalm 23, right? There's nothing that I need. He's my shepherd. I like nothing. That's the truth and reality about who God is and what God has done. Is he unfair? He's beyond fair. He has saved me by his grace. He died for me. Even when I was a sinner, he gave his life. Even when we were sinners, Christ loved us and he gave himself for us. Now let's ask the other question again. In faith now, believing all this, who does that make me? Who am I? Am I an, an unhappy person? No, because of who I am in Jesus, man, I am filled with joy. I have salvation. I'm free. I'm free. Am I an unsatisfied person? No, I am whole. 
I'm his child. I have everything I need for life and for godliness. Am I a person that's being treated unfairly? Are you kidding me? I've been forgiven of everything fully. And then you know what happens? And this isn't me that does this, but Christ in me, Christ in you, Holy Spirit in me, Holy Spirit in you changes our behavior. Now, what we do in our world is we try to modify our behavior. This goes back to moral therapeutic deism. Oh, well, I wasn't nice, so I want to change my behavior. I want to modify my behavior. No, listen, interchange happens the same way interchange began, by grace, through repentance and faith, through the power of the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. Now, at this point, the Holy Spirit takes over, and the fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control and on and on and on, right? And that wasn't me that produced that fruit. That was Christ in me that produced that fruit. So I'm asking you today, what does the fruit of your life recently say about the worldview that you're functioning out of? What does it say about what you're believing? What does it say about what you are holding to as valuable and important in your life? Are you believing the truth? Are you living in the truth? Or have you been believing the lies of all the other worldviews out there around us? Are you being discipled today by false gospels? Are you being discipled today, taught today, led today, shaped today by worldviews that are not rooted in the person of Jesus Christ? Are we following Jesus today? I think today would be a good day for believers in this room to redevote ourselves to him, to following him, to being his disciple, because he is the way and the truth and the life. I want you to listen to these words of scripture today. I'm going to go back to one I already read to you. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, see to it. Pay attention. Heads up. Be ready. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits. This is a spiritual battle, in other words, of the world and not according to Christ. To the Romans, Paul says this in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Listen, I want you to hear me clearly today. These eight, nine weeks that we're going to walk into together is to not prepare us for how to win arguments. Jesus hasn't left us here to win arguments, but to be used of him to win hearts into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. That we wouldn't just convey facts, but that our lives would convey the beauty of our Savior. How praiseworthy he really truly is. I want to go back to what Paul's writing in Colossians, but I want to go to the first chapter. And I want you to listen to this. Paul's saying to these people, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. And we're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, watch, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the sunny loves. In him, we have redemption 
the forgiveness of sins. And then Paul just launches into this worship. Listen to this. Oh, how the world needs to hear this. He is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him, all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, us here, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything. He is the answer to all that is wrong to reconcile everything to him. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, you held a different worldview in other words, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope, the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed, Paul says, in all creation. It's still being proclaimed in all creation. Come out to Shadow Lake tonight, watch the sunset, and the gospel's proclaimed. Go to the other side of the campus in the morning, watch it come up, and the gospel's being proclaimed. This gospel has been proclaimed. It is being proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And Paul says, and I've become a servant of it. Church, I want to invite you to stand today, and I want us to worship this one we call Jesus, the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth, the sacrifice for your sin and for my sin, the one who conquered sin and death in the grave, and the one who's coming back again. There's none like him. Today, we're not pitting ourselves against the world and saying, y'all got it all wrong. We got it all right. It's us against you. No, today is about us saying we're for the world. We want you to know Jesus like we know Jesus. Because once our minds were where your minds were, we thought we knew the real problem with us. We thought we knew the real problem with the world. We thought we knew the real solution, but we didn't. But thanks be to God, he has rescued us through his son, Jesus. And just as he did that for us, he'll do that for you. That's what we want. So we want to worship him and praise him and for that to spill out of here and spill out of us into this world that we live in.